Salesforce and this is Founder Coffee. Every few weeks I have coffee with a different founder. We discuss life, passions, learnings in an intimate talk, getting to know the person behind the company. For this 40th episode, I talked to a very special guest, Jason Fried, co-founder and CEO of Basecamp, the famous project management and communication platform. Jason loves creating things he wants and selling them to other people like him. That's how he started way back with selling stereo equipment and cordless phones and is now selling software to help teams do a better job. The very first thing we did when starting Salesforce was reading his first book and almost manifesto, Getting Real, and it shaped a lot of our early thinking at Salesforce, so I'm very glad to have him on the show. We talk about how to go about remote working the right way, why he puts sustainable growth over investor-fueled growth, and how to apply stoicism in life and in business. Welcome to Founder Coffee. Hi, everyone. Um, we're all live here today uh, with uh, Jason Fried of Basecamp. Hey, Jason. Um, Hello. It's great to have you on Founder Coffee. And um, today we're even recording this podcast interview live in the SaaS Growth Hacks group on Facebook. Uh, you're obviously uh, the co-founder and CEO of Basecamp, and for the few people listening to this that don't know yet, uh, what do you guys at Basecamp exactly do? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> well, we've um, we've been around for about 20 years, uh, and Basecamp, the product's been around for about 16 or 17 years. Um, mm-hmm. Basecamp would be described to most people as a project management tool. It's a place to keep track of all the work that has to get done, who's responsible for doing it, when are things done, all the discussions about the project happen in one place, um, documents, files, schedules, all that stuff happen in one place. And what's different about Basecamp than most tools is that Basecamp keeps it all in one place. So all the tools you need, chat, messaging, tasks, scheduling, file storage, that kind of stuff all happens inside Basecamp. You don't need four or five or six separate tools all trying to patch together just to yeah. make a project work. So that's what Basecamp's all about. So in a sense, it's also more like a communication tool than a, than a normal project management tool. Yeah, it's not about broadcasting charts or you know, graphs. It's about communication. Yeah. Um, so, so internal communication, project communication, client communication, and then keeping all the different assets and resources that you're going to need to get the project done all in one place. So everyone knows where everything is. Yeah. And no one has to wonder, where do I go to find that? That makes sense. Yeah. I, I read that it actually Basecamp started like uh, many of us listening and many fellow entrepreneurs I had on Founder Coffee from scratching your own itch from the, the web design agency you had and from trying to build a great tool there for, to collaborate. Uh, but where did your journey really start? Like before the web de- design agency and all that, what was the earliest thing you sort of did in your childhood or youth that you would qualify as entrepreneurial? Um, I've always been interested in selling stuff. Um, so back when I was, oh gosh, I don't know, 12, 13, something like that. Um, Mm -hmm. I started selling, um, stereo equipment and like, um, at the time cordless phones. (laughs) So like not cell phones, but like cordless phones. I'm 46. So like back then there wasn't cell phones when I was really, really Mm -hmm. young. Right. So, um, I just would sell like electronics equipment to my friends, stuff that I wanted. Like these are things that I wanted. So I'd find out how to buy them cheap and I'd sell them to my friends for more money. Yeah. And then I, I started doing that and I started making software at some point. Um, I started learning how to do that and I started selling that. And then um, I started selling shoes and I started, I, I would sell everything I could find. It was just something I've always been interested in. So I've been doing that ever since I've been, you know, like a, uh, 
I'd say probably, probably 12 or 13 or older. Um, and it's always been the same thing though. I would only sell something that I wanted to buy for myself. So I'm not someone who likes to just sell stuff. I, I like to sell things that I like, that I want. Which yeah. is why today I make software that I use, that I want. Um, that's the only way I've ever known how to do things. And I think it's the best way to do things. Yeah. And at some point, all of this selling, all these different things, uh, went into software. And I've uh, been reading and listening to some of the interviews you did in the past. And you mentioned at some point you, you built um, a music library tool for yourself. Yeah. So I was um, collecting music when I was younger, CDs and tapes and stuff. And um, I would loan them out to friends and I'd, I'd never get them back. I'd like, mm-hmm. I don't know where they went. So um, I, like, I was kind of sick of losing things. So I ended up learning how to make software in this thing called FileMaker Pro, which most people mm-hmm. probably don't know. Um, but back then, it was a really nice way to make like a database of something and then layer your own graphical interface on top of it. So it was a way for me to like, to make something. I didn't know how to do the programming. I mean, FileMaker Pro is a database, so I don't have to figure out how to like make a database, but I could mm-hmm. make an interface and then attach things together to make it work. And so I did that for myself. And then I started selling it on, on, on AOL, actually, way before the internet was around. Um, and uh, I said, if you like this thing, send me 20 bucks. And I started getting $20 checks in the mail. Um, and uh, so I made one for video, my video collection and then made one for my book collection. I just started yeah. making these things that I needed for myself. And then other people, you know, would need them too. And I put a price on them and sold them. And that's what I ended up doing. And that's today what I still do. Same thing. Basecamp yeah. is something we use at Basecamp every single day to run our entire company to communicate. We don't use email. We don't use Slack. We don't use any of that stuff. We use Basecamp alone to do everything that we do at Basecamp. And um, we're about to launch a new product called Hey, H-E-Y.com, mm-hmm. which is a new email service. We built it for ourselves. And I wanted something better than what we had. So we built something for ourselves. And now we're going to find other people who want it too. That's how I've always done things. It, it traces all the way back to the music collection thing. Um, to me, there's a, there's a very direct line between then and now. Yeah, it's still all sass in a way, you could say. Yeah, it's all, I want something to exist in the world because I'm unsatisfied or not satisfied mm-hmm. with the things that do exist. And so I will make that thing and then I will find other people like me. So what I don't do is I don't ask people what they want. I don't go around asking them what they want. I don't do market research. Mm-hmm. I just build something that I want. And then I, my task and then instead is to find other people like me who have similar problems, who want similar things that I do. So that's how I put my energy into it versus trying to find the people to sell to initially. I just sell to myself and then find other people like me. Yeah. Makes it easier, I suppose, to put your passion in it, understand what people want instead of having to, to really go into another person's mind and try to dissect that. Yeah, it's really, really hard to truly know what someone else wants or needs because you're relying on them to describe it to you. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to describe exactly what you want, really. It's hard to describe exactly what you're struggling with. Um, and people reach for the most convenient descriptions, but those aren't necessarily the real reasons and the real things. So when you, when you scratch your own itch and make your own thing for yourself, you have a much deeper understanding of what you need to solve the problem or to, to, to what you're struggling with. And then you also know when that problem kind of goes away, when that itch has been scratched, because you go, ah, that thing I've been wanting to do, I can now do. I know that for, for certain, that's true to me, mm-hmm. versus when you build something for other people, you have to keep asking them, is this right? Is this right? Is this what you meant? Yeah. Is this what you wanted? And yeah. people, again, have a hard time really answering you. 
No, I feel the same way. When, when we use our software properly ourselves at Salesforce, you get such a, a deeper insight into the, the thing you're building for other people that it helps you to then help them as well. Yes. Uh, but in, in, uh, in one of the interviews I, I checked out, uh, you were saying that at some point you got this first check like from Germany for the, the music library. Yeah. You, you understood the power of SaaS. And I think more and more people nowadays, like you were very early in that, but, uh, the, the Facebook group in which we're uh, broadcasting this has 20,000 people. And I also have more and more friends who are asking me like, oh, I would like to do something in software because, for instance, a friend of mine is uh, uh, doing um, a drone certification. Uh, but because they, the, that recurring business model seems so interesting, uh, they want to get in SaaS as well. Yeah. Um, so I would like to hear from you, what do you think about people wanting to get in SaaS um, and what would be good reasons for them to do this? And what would be bad reasons, you think? Well, I think the bad reason is always just because of the money. Like if you're like, well, I hear that that's the hot place to be. I want to be there because it's yeah. that's just not enough of a reason. Um, SaaS is good when you have a product that is... Um, something people are going to use for the long term. SaaS mm -hmm. is not particularly good when you have something that's only going to be useful for a month or two, right? So sometimes people build software that's like utility-based. They, they need they, someone needs it right now, but they're not going to need it in three months, and that's hard to get recurring revenue on. So something like Basecamp, for example, is something a company will use for years and years and years. Um, email is something people are going to use for years and years. So I, I'd make sure that whatever it is that you have or whatever it is that you're working on, it's something that, that um, can be woven into a company's or a person's life or, or, or workflow where they can't imagine not having that thing. Yeah. Then it's probably a good fit. Um, so that, that's kind of the thing. So you got to be careful because I know the model is very um, lucrative and very seductive and people want, to, want recurring revenue because it's, it's, it's a nice thing to have in a business but your product has to align very well with that model. Otherwise it's people might subscribe for a month and then cancel. And then, yeah. then you're, then you're no different than just selling software one off. So make sure the model's um, applicable to the problem you're trying to. to try so to truly recurring revenue then, but does that, does that then also imply that whatever you make, um, yeah, requires more work or, well, Not necessarily, um, but here's the thing about recurring revenue too and, and software as a service is that everyone thinks the hard thing is launching the thing and building the thing. That's actually the easy part. The hard part mm -hmm. is maintaining it for many years. Um, once customers are paying you on a monthly basis or an annual basis, they expect improvements. They expect you to be there. They expect great customer service. They expect improve, you know, maintenance. Um, there's a lot of things that they expect. And so what you also can't be is you can't be someone who wants to move on to the next thing immediately. If you always want to move on to the next thing immediately, it's going to be a problem because so when people are paying you for a service, they really expect um, consistent long-term improvement mm -hmm. versus just launching something and then moving on to the next product and moving on to the next product, moving on to the next product, which is something you can do if you're just selling things one off because you don't have that sense of obligation to the customer forever as much. It's like they bought the thing, they have the thing, we're done. But software as a service is like they have the thing and I'm providing a service. I'm not just providing software, I'm providing a service. And a service is something that's continual. And so you have to have the right mindset to be okay with that. Some entrepreneurs love to just move on to the next thing all the time. And that's not a really good model for, for SaaS. 
That's sound advice. Yeah. Um, a thing, a thing uh, when I asked people for questions to ask you in the Facebook group was uh, they all wonder why you're so controversial with your opinions. Um, my personal theory is that uh, you really care. Like, like you just said, you really care about uh, being there in the long term for your team, for your customers. And that by doing so, uh, you're very thoughtful about it and, and are not afraid of taking sort of a controversial stance in that matter. Is that, am I sort of getting close there or is there, what's exactly behind this? Well, it's funny because I don't, I ultimately don't think my point of view is controversial. Mm -hmm. it, it's like build a good business, sell something for, for a price that's, that, that, you know, you make more money than you spend stay in like earn more money than you spend don't grow too fast aim to be in business for a long time be profitable mm -hmm. be honest with your customers and your employees treat people well make things simple like these are not actually controversial ideas but in our industry they are because our industry is True. obsessed with growth at all costs and they just it just wants to grow and dominate and destroy everyone else um our industry is obsessed with giving things away for free and trying to figure out how to make money later. Our industry is obsessed with raising a bunch of money that you don't need, putting unnecessary pressure on entrepreneurs to perform at levels that are unreasonable. Our industry is obsessed with super long hours. They think that you mm -hmm. have to work all day, all night, all weekend, bust your ass to get anything done. I, I don't agree. I think 40 hours a week is plenty. Eight hours a day is plenty. But my point of view is not really controversial in the world. It's just controversial in our industry. And that's the thing that's so weird about it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, here, here's the thing. We, we are, we're, we're willing to speak our mind and, 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 and call things like we see them. Mm -hmm. um, and we do have strong opinions. Whether or not they're controversial is for someone else to decide. But our opinions are strong. and We believe in what we say. And, um, you know, we have a 20-year back record of, or a track record of backing it up. Um, and um, I think a lot of companies are, and a lot of founders and CEOs and whatever are actually afraid just to, to tell people what they think. Um, and they're afraid of, of upsetting a potential customer or they're afraid of turning somebody off. So they stay quiet and they don't, they don't share. We're, we believe in sharing everything we, we've learned. There's no reason to keep anything a secret. And um, here we are. So that's, again, like in our industry, we're, we're a little bit different, but in business, we're not. That's the thing. Like the pizza shop on the corner, the dry cleaners, the small business down the street, we're, we're, they would not think we're controversial. They think that we're spot on. Like you got to make, make more money than you spend. You can't sell pizzas at a loss forever. Like everyone yeah. would do that. Um, but, you know, our industry is kind of weird and, and wrong, I think, in a lot of things. So that's why we push back and why we're seen this way. And if you would have to sort of... Um think back where, where, where do you think that pressure comes from or where did that originate? Uh, Which pressure? The pressure to, to grow at all costs. Uh, Let's summarize it yeah. like that. I think there's, um, there's a number of, uh, of sort of core reasons why, but I think the, um, the primary reason is, is probably the, the prevalence of, of a lot of cheap money. Uh, meaning there's a lot of money, a lot of people are investing a lot of money in technology companies. And a lot of people think that um, if they raise money, that they're going to be rich and famous and powerful and all these things. 
And there's always a few examples to point to. It's like, I want to be like that person. I want to be like that person. And so what they do, well, they raised a bunch of money and they did the whole thing. And, and so people think to do that. And then the thing is, is though, is that when you raise a lot of money, expectations are different on you. All of a sudden mm-hmm. you need to, it's not about how good your business is. It's about how big a return can you, can you return to the investors? And so investors naturally are going to say, well, I want you to bust your ass for me because all I care about is the return ultimately. Um, and so like hire as many people as you can go hard, as hard as you can do all these things as hard as you can. So we can get the multiple that we want down the road. And the thing is, is that while some bi- like there's a handful of businesses where that's true, most of them are not but well served by that kind of model. Most of them would be much better off growing slowly, growing in control, growing manageably, growing profitably, um, and not trying to be the unicorn that most people are never going to be. Um, so I think a lot of it is, is the mythology of the billionaire, the mythology of the, of the world domination. A lot of it, it comes down to ego as well. People wanting to feed their ego. And they think that if they raise a bunch of money, they're, they're validated by other rich people who've done well in their lives. And so they're going to be rich and famous as well. It's just this whole ugly cycle of, um, mm-hmm. of, of trying to be something that you're not and trying to do it for someone else. Um, so I think that's, that's the main reason why. And there's, of course, people, are, what about Amazon? What about Apple? Yeah. What about them? Okay. That's, there's always going to be some of those companies, but think about how many other companies are not like them. Pretty much mm-hmm. everybody else is not like them. Um, and so most people, if they try to go down that path, are not going to get anywhere near the level of, of achievement or success that they're looking for. And they'd be much better off building a nice, solid company with 30 people generating 9 million bucks a year and be able to do that for 20 years and having a great life and a, and a, great, a, a great business and taking great care of customers and taking great care of employees. That's a much healthier business for most companies than trying to go all out and trying to, to dominate an industry or dominate market share or whatever. So anyway, it's, it's sexy. It's, it, it seems exciting. Um, everyone loves to talk about how much money they've raised, but it's really, I don't think, a really good path for most companies. Yeah. And uh, if, if you would advise other people on, apart from, uh, you, you haven't taken VC money, right? Apart from some money from Jeff Bezos. Um, but what other advice would you give them uh, to help them stay grounded like yourselves? Well, the key is, is to... to um, not get ahead of yourself. You know, if you go out and hire a bunch of people and all of a sudden you're deep in the black or deep in the red, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. And and you're you're spending a ton of money. Like you're already just, you're in trouble. You're you're in trouble right from the start. And so now you're going to make probably poor decisions. You're under the gun, you're under pressure. It's going to be crazy. Um, I think the key is, is to, is to never get ahead of yourself really. So like, if you feel like you can afford to hire two people, then that's it. Mm -hmm. Don't hire your third until you can afford to. Don't hire your third and your fourth and your fifth and your sixth in anticipation of trying to get to the point where you can afford them. Just don't hire people you can't afford. Don't spend on money on things you can't afford. Don't spend as much money on, on marketing that you can't afford. Don't get ahead of yourself because you put yourself in a really dangerous position and a really desperate position. Um, and some people thrive in those environments. Most people do not. So I, I would just say like, keep things under control, grow slowly and organically, mm-hmm. and don't spend a lot of money. Keep your costs in check. This is the thing that everyone seems to forget. Everyone talks about revenue and sales. They forget about costs. Keep your costs in check. Um, don't get ahead of yourself. Don't put unnecessary pressure on yourself. And you do, there's no rush here. There's no race here. Um, just go smart, get smart, stay small, and move slowly and carefully and deliberately. And you know you have a better shot. This is all, like, the odds are against you no matter what. 
but I think you have a much better shot. You have better odds if you're just trying to build a basically solid, sustainable business than trying to be the next Amazon. Like you're not going to be the next Amazon. That's the news for you, by the way. You will not be. So what are you going to be? What can you be? I think the whole key is to improve your odds. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and growing in control and keeping your company small and keeping your costs low, um, improve, improve your odds. And you can always go somewhere from there, but you got to start there so you have a solid footing and then you can go somewhere else. So I think people are in a rush. People want to be something they're not and they put unnecessary pressure on themselves and a lot of businesses die. Good businesses die because they try to be something that they're not. They try to get bigger than they need to be too soon and they flame out. So avoid those kinds of things. I think you're in a much better position. Cool. Yeah. Zooming in a, a bit more on you, um, a thing I like to do in these founder interviews is, is really understanding how founders like you and others spend their days. So if I would ask you what you put focus and energy into uh, right now, what would that be? So how would like a typical week look like for you, you would say? Like what are yeah. the things you put your time in? So there's no typical week. Um, I don't have, uh, I, my schedule is, is pretty open. I, I don't have meetings. We don't have meetings at Basecamp. Um, we, you know, I do what I need to do any given day, any given week. We're launching this new product in about a month. So mm-hmm. I'm really focused right now on finishing that up. And so what am I doing with that? I'm doing a lot of writing on the, on the marketing site on hey.com. So H-E-Y.com, I'm going to be, right now there's not much there, but I'm going to be writing, writing the whole marketing site. Um, really kind of honing in on the, on, the, on the final little details of the product itself, final features, final interface design tweaks, bouncing around between teams and kind of helping them solve some problems that are kind of coming mm-hmm. up at the last minute, that kind of stuff. So I'm just kind of jumping around right now a lot on a bunch of little things because we're trying to get stuff in order. You know, It's like if you're going to have a dinner party at seven o'clock and at six o'clock, like you're just making sure all the house is clean and this is right. And that's right. Like, that's kind of what I'm doing right now. Mm-hmm. Typically, though, that's not how we are because we don't launch new products very often. So it just sort of depends on what we're working on in a given week or a given cycle, which is six weeks in our world. Um, but there's nothing typical. I don't, I don't like start my day in a certain way, work on these sorts of things. I don't meet with people that often. Um, I'm just figuring out what projects I'm, I need to work on. What do I need to be good at today? What do I need to be good at this week? And I'll do one or two things a week and focus all my energy on those things. But right now I'm just bouncing around. But my days are about eight hours. Um, sometimes I work from nine to five. Other times I'll work from like nine to three. I'll take a couple hour break and then I'll, I'll work a little bit at night. Um, but I don't put in more than eight hours a day. I don't work on the weekends. Um, and, um, you know, I just do what needs to, needs to happen. I mean, I'm focused primarily on, on longer term vision stuff as a CEO. I'm, I'm, I'm helping different teams solve problems. I'm making sure the product feels right, looks right, acts right. Um, I'm interacting with customers all the time on Twitter or via email. Um, I'm doing a lot of writing. Uh, I'm doing a lot of design work and thinking about the next set of features we're going to build into our products, that kind of stuff. But there's, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say there's a typical week. No. So you, you basically decide where you're needed and then yes. that's where you put your time. Is there any... Uh, method is maybe a big word, but uh, that you use to dis- dis- decide where you're needed? No, I, I really am. I'm a very sort of um, go with the flow kind of person on, on that. Like mm-hmm. I know what, like right now, um, like I said, we're about a month away from launching this thing. We're making some major interface design tweaks. We started making them a couple of weeks ago. I've been working very closely with one designer on that. And we're going to ship those changes today or tomorrow to the internal team who's using the product and the beta testers. 
And so I'm just kind of like right now that that's where I'm needed. I'm needed on honing that in yeah. and making sure that's right. Um, come Tuesday, once we've shipped that, I'm going to jump over into something else. And I don't necessarily know what that's going to be right now. Um, mm-hmm. But on Tuesday, I'll know. I'll just know. Yeah. You just know. Like you, if, you're, if you're involved in things, you know where you're needed and you know what, what needs to be done. And also, I'll pick out things that I think need to be better. And so I'll mm-hmm. focus my energy on that or I'll talk to someone about that. So um, like over the next few weeks, um, we're going to be, we haven't really talked much. We've talked a, a bit about this product, Hey, this email thing, but we haven't shown any screenshots. We haven't talked about any specifics yet. Over the next few weeks, we're going to start doing that. So I'm going to start doing some videos. I'm going to start doing some live streams. I'm going to start sharing some of the details out. So I'm going to be thinking about which ones are the first ones I want to share. Why do I want to share those? How do I want to share those? How do, am I going to write the post? Am I going to do a video? Am I going to share screenshots? Am I going to do this on Twitter? Am I going to do it on a blog? I don't really know, but it'll come to yeah. me and each one might be different. But I know that's roughly the next few weeks of my time. I'm going to be thinking a lot about early promotion and sharing the philosophy and the ideas behind this product. Um, I just don't know exactly how that's going to be. And I don't have a, a checklist. I don't have a, a method. It's just whatever I feel is the right way to do something on a given day is kind of how I do it and how we do it as a company. Okay. Yeah. yeah we're, that's, that's, we're, we're scattered in, in a sense. And like we make it up as we go. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just how we've always been and, and how I think we work best. It's not, I, I don't want to come off as saying, this is how I think everyone should work. Mm-hmm. This is just what works for me and works for us. And I think what's most important is to know yourself. If you're a very structured person and you need the checklist, you need the to-do list and you need the re- regimented week and you need the meetings every day, like you should do what works for you. That doesn't work for me. I'd be miserable. I would quit tomorrow if that was yeah. my life. Um, I, I like to, to bounce around and find the things I need to do and then focus deep on those things. So I don't want to bounce around on 12 things in a given day. That, but, but I want to be able to be flexible enough to jump in and help with something and really think it through and really get it right. And when I'm done with that, then find the next thing to work on. Yeah. yeah. This, this also sort of ties into one of the, the top questions that came up in the Facebook group leading up to this interview, which was um, why you don't use any software to track metrics and to track how people are using your software. Um, if I'm not mistaken, you also don't believe in sort of numeric goals in general, but if you would use some software to track how people use your product, wouldn't you be, have more information to improve it or... <laughs> How, how do you get that instead if you don't do that? Yeah, so we do have, uh, we do have internal tracking on, on um, page views and that kind of stuff and screen. And, and you know, we have the, we have okay. the data internally. We, what we don't use, we don't use third-party um, analytics. So that's what oh, we that's... don't use. We don't use Google Analytics. We used to use something called Clicky. We don't use that anymore. We have our own internal analytics. So we do have the data, but we don't use third-party. Yeah. That's what that's about. The reason we don't use third-party data is because we don't want to share our customer data with third parties. Um, we don't want to have tracking pixels all over the place. We, we don't like that invasion of privacy. So we, we stay away from that. So we do look at data uh, to help us make some decisions, but primarily most of our product decisions are, are by gut. And again, by what we want for ourselves. Getting back to the first thing about scratching our own itch. Mm-hmm. The more we build things for ourselves, the better off those things turn out. The more we try to build things by painting by numbers, basically by looking at data and asking other people what they want, we're just not as good at that. And other companies are much better at that. We're just not. And we know ourselves. So mm-hmm. we look at data when we need to help clarify something we're not totally clear about. We don't look to data for necessarily for insights and truths about what we should do. But we, help, we use the data to help us make decisions when we have already have a pretty, much, a pretty decent sense 
but we want to know like how critical is this or is there any additional information we could pull from this that would help us make a decision? But we don't look at the data and decide where to go next. So that's kind of a different way of thinking about data. Data is to help us clarify, not to help us discover. Yeah. And, and by the way, to your, to your other point, like we could be doing it wrong. We, maybe if we looked at data more often, we'd be doing it better. It's all possible. Um, so I'm not here to argue this is the best way. It's just this is the way that works well for us. And and the way that we want to build products. We want to run, like, this mm -hmm. is the thing I always get, I'm always surprised by when I talk to entrepreneurs is how little they run the business the way they want to run it. They end up running business for other people, either for investors or because they read something somewhere and this is how you're supposed to do it and they're miserable, but that's what you're supposed to do, right? So I do it this way. It's like, no, yeah, do what works for you. Do, do what you enjoy doing. There's no other reason to do this than to do it for that reason anyway. Um, and find your own way. And... Um, know yourself and know what you enjoy. If, for example, if I had to have meetings all day, I, like I said, I would quit. If I had to, if I couldn't make a product decision without having to go through reams of data to justify every decision I make, I would be unhappy. I would not be running this company anymore. Maybe the company would be better without me. That's possible too. But for whatever mm -hmm. it is, like I run it, I run it my way. We do things our way. And that is, we find the ways that we feel most comfortable doing the work that we do that makes us happy. And, um, the outcome is the outcome. So like we've been in business for 20 years. So, so far that's been working out pretty well, but it might not work at some point. It might not work and that's okay too. But I, I don't want to do something every day that I don't enjoy. And I would not enjoy having to justify every possible decision with data. It's just not something I enjoy doing. Cool. Yeah. That makes sense. Let me, let me switch to a slightly different topic, um, sure. which is uh, remote work. Uh, there's a lot of remote work going on nowadays and uh, you guys have almost, I think, two decades of experience with this. Um, so it would be interesting to hear some of your advice on how to avoid some of the, the beginner's mistakes on remote working, let's say. So what are some of the mistakes you've been making over the years um, and, and how did you fix those mistakes? Yeah, I think the biggest mistake companies are making right now is that they're treating remote work as local work remotely, meaning they're working the same way they worked in their office. They're just working mm -hmm. far apart. Remote work is a different method of working. It's not just working separated from people physically. It's actually a different method. So fewer meetings, more time to yourself, more long form writing, less chatting, less real-time communication, more what we call slow time or asynchronous communication. Um, mm -hmm. giving people their schedules back, giving people their days back, giving people their space back, giving people their attention back. That's what's wonderful about remote work. If you're sitting in Zoom calls and meetings all day or in Skype or whatever you use, because that's what you did in person, in person you were in meetings all day in meeting rooms, like that's the wrong way to do remote work. It's actually worse. It's far, I think meetings are pretty bad to begin with, but to have them, to be sitting in video conferences all day is way worse. It's harder. It's, 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 a whole lot less fun. It's really emotionally draining. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that what I'm seeing smart companies do is embrace the fact that because they're working remotely, they don't have to communicate in real time anymore. Before they used to pull people in the rooms or yell across the room or go up to someone's desk and just start chatting. They can't do that anymore. And they shouldn't do that anymore. They should give people more time to think things through. They should write things up in long form and disseminate that information. We use Basecamp, of course, to do this. And then give people time to think about their response 
and write it up. Maybe it's even the next day they respond versus this feeling of having to respond to everything immediately, which is what real-time communication is about. It's very real-time communication is very reactionary. You don't even get time to think. We want people to think. Smart companies work remotely, give people time to think and to deliberate and to sit on it and to sleep on it. That's what great remote work companies do. So I think every time we, and we make this mistake too, sometimes, even though we've been doing this forever, we'll get into some discussion. We'll be in base camp. We'll be chatting about something in base camp and there'll be a bunch of back and forth. And someone has to chime in and go, Hey, someone needs to write this up. Like we're not chatting is the wrong method for this. Someone write it up. And so someone will step back and take a minute or an hour or five hours or two days to write up the idea a thousand words, like in long form, write up the idea. And if it's never written up, it's because it didn't matter anyway. And it's a great, wonderful way to kind of like push aside things that don't matter. But if people are really motivated by this thing they're discussing, someone will write it up and then we can discuss it properly that way. So we find ourselves falling into the trap of chat all the time. Chat's a terrible way to work remotely Mm -hmm. for the most part. It's handy occasionally for sure. But as the primary method of communication, it's it's a real step backwards. And I think a lot of companies fall into that trap as well because they're trying to simulate real time because they're so used to real time in person. So why do you think it's a step backwards chat? I mean, you, you've launched one of the first team chat products, I think, with Campfire. Yeah. We, we did and we learned our lesson. Yeah. <laughs> the, the problem is, is that most discussions have nothing to do with right now. But when you talk right now in real time, people feel like decisions have to be made in real time. You have to get in, you have to be watching the conversations that are going on in real time. You have to jump in in real time. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to participate in that conversation. Mm-hmm. And so everyone all of a sudden is like being pulled off their work all day long to participate in this conveyor belt of real time conversations that have nothing to do with right now, that don't need to be discussed right now. And everyone's trying to jump in and everyone's trying to react. This is a terrible way to make decisions and terrible way to debate things and discuss things. It's a handy way to show someone something really quickly. It's a handy way to ask a quick question or whatever. But as far as working on something and really thinking something through and giving it the time it deserves and giving it the deliberation it deserves, real time is a terrible way to do it. For example, right now, you and I are talking. Mm-hmm. If my company was having a real-time conversation, I'm going to miss this for an hour, right? Because you and I are going to talk for an hour. And what if I have something to say about that conversation? Well, if it's happening in real time, it's already going to be over by the time I get off this call. And then what am I going to jump in and rehash the whole thing and read back a transcript? It's like no, I'm not going to do that. That's a terrible way to talk. What, what should be happening instead is if someone has something they want to share with the company, they should write it up, post it to Basecamp. And then when I'm off this call and someone else is off their call or someone else frees up in three hours, they can read that thing and they can respond in kind in a proper comment thread that has a permanent place. It's not part of a transcript where ton, tons of other discussions are happening. Every discussion at Basecamp has a proper individual page where you can have that discussion and all the comments about that mm-hmm. discussion live on that page versus having dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of different conversations sometimes happening all at the same time in an endless transcript with no differentiation, no descriptions, just a mess of conversation only organized by time. It's a terrible way to catch up on things. It's a terrible way to try to have a conversation about things. It's a terrible way to make people feel like they're going to miss out if they don't jump in right now. It just, it creates anxiety and a fear Mm -hmm. of missing out, which is not really a healthy environment for, for a company. So um, I've written up, if anyone's curious about this, you can just Google group chat, group stress, and you'll find a long article I've written about uh, my concerns with group chat. And like you said, we were, we were basically the, the first team to really build a group chat tool back in 2006. So we've had more experience with this 
technology than anybody else. And we've seen the downfalls and the pitfalls. Um, and other companies are now beginning to see these as well. They're like, you know, I thought Slack was going to, you know, they promised to make things more organized and to help us get more things done. All I'm doing is being distracted all day long now by a bunch of different conversations I need to pay attention to. People are dealing me left and right. I have no time to myself. Stuff's scattered everywhere. I mean, I don't know where to look for things. Am I supposed to scroll back? How do I know that this chunk of the conversation is the only part of the conversation? Maybe this conversation also happened four hours earlier on top of these other three conversations that happened. Like, it's a mess. It's a mess yeah. and it's disorganized. And we learned that eventually. Um, and we still ha we have chat in Basecamp. We still use chat, but not as a primary method of having conversations. It's a secondary tertiary perhaps way of having conversations but mostly it's used for sharing quick things when we need to not for actually making real decisions and really talking things through yeah yeah same, same thing for us i think chat is more of a thing like pinging each other asking a quick question but if we have discussions we personally do that in uh in google docs we have a yep. document mm -hmm. you write a whole thing up and then you start putting comments and you can put comments and comments and then the, the, the whole thing grows and at some point, the comments get resolved into the, the, the text, let's say. Is that sort of the, the way you would prescribe or do you see any issues with that? No, that's better. I think that's much, much better. Um, the, the thing is, is that the problem with Google Docs is that you've got all these individual documents mm -hmm. all over the place. There's no sense of a place there is google docs and google docs you could have a thousand docs in google docs and you can have a thousand different conversations in google docs and they're just spread out but it's better than chat because chat is an endless single transcript where mm -hmm. like you don't really know what's being discussed everything's just interwoven or whatever so so comments in a google doc is good the problem with google docs is that it's a it's essentially a a text document that can be ever-changing and comments like comments you don't know what you're really discussing because you're just sort of discussing the current state of whatever you're looking at. But mm -hmm. a comment might have tied back to something that was discussed that was a different version of that document in the past. Like it's it's just a little bit less fluid, or I should say, a little bit too fluid, in my opinion, mm -hmm. than having a fixed statement, a fixed thing, and then the changes are actually happening in the comments. That's like how it works in Basecamp, where oh, any okay. updates are happening in the comments. So you you always know the original is the original. And then mm -hmm. updates happen in the comments themselves, not in the original document, because now you don't really have right. the original source material anymore. You don't really know what you were discussing in the first place. You can't really see how it's changed. Yeah, you can track changes, but that's also really complicated. So, but anyway, it's still much better than, um, that, than, than trying to discuss things in chat. Yeah. And, and, and talking about video calling anyway, uh, I know you said you don't have a lot of meetings, maybe not a lot of video meetings. Uh, but for all of those who are using Zoom right now, it's a huge uh, amount of users yeah, sure. on Zoom now. Uh, what are some of the, the tips you could still give away? And, and where would you like to see video calling going perhaps in the future? Yeah, I mean, we use video calls um, when we need to elevate something beyond writing. So, for example, mm -hmm. if we're writing something and there's a long comment thread and we just find after 10, 15 comments or something back and forth, like, we're just not getting anywhere, we'll then maybe elevate it to video, right? But video mm -hmm. is not the first resort, just like meetings are not the first resort. Meetings are failures in many cases of, of the inability of a team to solve a problem that's on its own in other ways. The fact that you have to stop work 
to get together to talk about something often means that something isn't going well in work Mm -hmm. or you just meet too much because that's what you just do on a repetitive basis. Like, well, that's just what we do. Every Monday morning, we just meet. We're not even thinking anymore. We don't think. We just do this. That, to me, is also a little bit of a failure. Um, failure is a bit of a strong word, but like most things can be worked out in conversations, written up over a matter of might be hours, days, whatever, without having to stop work. Mm-hmm. Meetings are very expensive. Seven people need to talk about something for an hour. It's not an hour. It's seven hours. Seven hours of work has been lost because you have to talk about something for an hour that probably could have been worked out in, you know, over time in gaps between work versus stopping work for everybody at the same time. It's very costly to do that. So um, here's the thing. Video, we do it. Small groups, two or three people max. Anything bigger than that, I think it's a disaster. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think typically it's usually one or or two people max. Um, And also it's only after almost not always, but almost always after a discussion couldn't be resolved in a writing fashion or through writing it up first. So debates or nuance, little things sometimes that you just can't get quite through in writing or people just aren't listening to each other that way, then you elevate it to chat. So, or elevate it to video. So to me, it's a, it's a wonderful medium for when you need to really clarify something that hasn't been clarified before versus the default thing. Cause what ends up happening is you pop on a video call and you sit there for an hour and you just talk about something that could have been handled many other ways. And you've lost an hour of your day and two people have lost it or three people have lost it, or five people or 10 people have lost yeah. it all at the same time. It's very costly. It's not worth it. But again, like this video, video is wonderful. It's just, mm-hmm. you don't want to use it all the time. Just like in a physical space, you don't want to be going up to people all the time and asking them questions. Just like in a physical space, you don't want to be pulling people off their work all the time, pulling them into meeting rooms all the time. Like it's very inefficient. It's very expensive. And this is why people end up working longer hours, not because there's more work to do, but because they don't have time to get work done at work anymore because they're being pulled off their work all day long. So they're expected to do stuff, but they have no time to do it because they're being pulled off into conversations they don't need to have in real time all the time. It's just, it's a busted metaphor. It's a busted method, I mean. Um, And I think people are going to begin to realize this more and more and more, especially with working from home, where hopefully you get a chance to have a little bit more time to yourself. And people are going to realize how much more productive they are when they're not being pulled off and pulled into meetings constantly. Um, So I think we're going to, people are going to begin to see um, the benefits of this soon. Although there's some downsides too, isolation feeling independent, you know, working on your own all day can be hard too. And people are going to have to adjust to that as well. But um, there's some real advantages to working remotely and I hope people start to pick up on those. Yeah. Do you think this is also one of the reasons why you guys with, I think, according to LinkedIn was around 90 people uh, at Basecamp or is that an incorrect number? Uh, no, 50, uh, 55 or 56 people. Uh, LinkedIn is completely overestimated. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, despite... Working with 55 people, I think you have uh, over 100,000 customers, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and there's millions of people who use Basecamp. And yeah, we've got a lot, yeah. a lot of people. So small company mm-hmm. generate tens of millions of dollars in annual profits every year. We've been profitable every year we've been in business. And we have 55 people, 56 people. Um, so we're a very small company intentionally. We have a lot mm-hmm. of customers. Um, we price our products in a way where no customer can pay us more than anybody else. So we don't sell Basecamp by the seat, by the person. We sell it 99 bucks a month, unlimited users, 
unlimited mm-hmm. projects, unlimited everything essentially. Um, and that way, no customer can take our advantage of us in a sense. So here's the thing. Yeah. This is one of the things that happens with SaaS. When you sell per seat, um, you might have one customer, you might land a customer that has 10,000 seats. And that's a huge contract. And all your other customers have 40 people, 20 people, 18 people, 105 people. Who are you going to work for? You're working for the 10,000 person company. Mm-hmm. So basically what you have become is a consulting business again. You don't, you're not a software company. You don't run your own business anymore. You work for them. Because if they leave you, you're screwed. And the key is, in my opinion, in business, is you never want a customer that you can't afford to lose. We can lose, I mean, we don't want to, but we can lose, you can pick 20% of our customers. You can pick any ones you want. We'd be okay because none of those customers in that batch would be a customer that's paying us $100,000 a month. They're a million dollars a year. Like all of our customers pay us basically the same amount of money. So of course we don't want to lose them, but, but we're more resilient because mm-hmm. we, we, price things the way we price things versus everyone else prices things per seat. And then you end up having to be afraid to lose customers and you end up doing things for your product and for your company that you don't want to do, but you do because if you don't do them, you'll lose the big customer. And then again, it's not your company anymore. You don't work for yourself anymore. You work for them. And you didn't start a business to work for someone else. But I'm sure there's other ways than uh, not pricing per seat uh, to to stay away from this sort of uh, dilemma. Yeah, I mean, th- there are many ways, but pricing per seat can get you into that dilemma pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, project-based pricing can also get you into that dilemma. So, for example, if you're a consultant and you sign up one customer, you know, for a nine-month project for, I'm just making up numbers, a million dollars or something, and all your other customers are paying you $100,000, I guarantee you when the customer is paying a million dollars, ask for more of your time, you're going to give more of your time. And when they ask you to work on the weekend, you're going to work on the weekend. And when they ask you to do some change, make a change for them at 11 o'clock at night, you're going to do that. Why? Because mm-hmm. they're paying you a million bucks and no one else is. And so you're going to be working for them again. And this is the thing entrepreneurs fall into this trap all the time where they start a business to work for themselves and then they screw up their pricing and they work for someone else. It's and um, it's just, they, and they get stuck because now, now they can't not do that. They have to do that. Because that's just the way they're set up and, and it's, it's unfortunate. And it happens. So you just want to be really careful and really thoughtful about that and realize that your pricing model is, has so much to do with the kind of business that you can build and the kind of business that you can run and the kind of time you can spend and the kind of resiliency that you have um, and the kind of profitability you can attain and the kind of flexibility that you'll need. Like It all ties back to that. And I don't think a lot of companies think enough about that. They go, oh, well, they're doing it this way. I'll just do it that way. It's like, that's a Maybe you'll pick the right way, but you can also build a business, end up building a business you don't want to run. For example, if a company came to us today and said, I'll pay you $10 million a month for Basecamp if you do X, Y, and Z, the answer would be no. Absolutely, mm-hmm. unequivocally no. We don't want you as a customer paying us $10 million a month. How can we turn away that kind of money? Because we don't want to run a business that way. And it's not worth it to us to run a business that way. It just isn't. I don't want to do this every day in a way, you know, I don't want to do, I don't want to run a business every day in a way I don't want to run a business. It's just not worth it. It's not worth it. The money's not worth it. We can make plenty of money in other ways the way we're doing it today. So you have to be willing to know what you're going to say no to, and you have to be willing to put limits on, on what you're willing to do. Um, otherwise you're going to end up basically not being in business for yourself anymore. Yeah. Uh, apart from flat pricing for every customer, the same, what are some of the secrets you can share uh, on 
are serving that amount of customers with, with such a small set of employees? Yeah, uh, really important thing is to, is to um, um, make a very simple, straightforward product. So um, we've got all these customers. We get about 500 customer service emails a day, which mm-hmm. might seem like a lot to some, but it's really not based on our usage. Um, and that's because Basecamp is a very simple, straightforward product. Um, and so, you, you know, if you make a complicated product that requires someone to onboard a team and requires a lot of handholding and walkthroughs and requires a lot of customization, like you can't have a small business. You're going to have a big, hairy, complicated business because the product and the sales process and the requirements are big, hairy, and complicated. If you make a simple product, we don't do any customizations. Um, we don't do any custom agreements. Um, you know, we have, we have fixed flat pricing, you know, we don't have salespeople. It's all self-service. So it has to be simple enough for people to go to basecamp.com and sign up and get started. We have very good onboarding. So people don't ask a lot of questions about what's like, how to do this and do that. Of course, people like we're not as good as we could be. We're not saying Mm -hmm. we're perfect in any way. We're certainly not. Um, but we've put a lot of effort into making things clear and straightforward and simple for people so they can do their own work. They can figure things out themselves and they don't need a lot of handholding. Um, and if they do, we're here for them, but most people don't need it. And so the thing is, though, I, I've seen so many products that, that I've had to sign up for, like a, v- a vendor requires to sign up for something, and it requires a call with a salesperson, and it requires custom customization, and it requires a ton of onboarding, and it requires all this stuff. And it's like, I'm thinking to myself, you're making this hard on yourselves. Why mm-hmm. are you making a product that's so complicated? No wonder you have a company of 700 people. And 2% profit margins because like you've made this incredibly complicated and challenging for everybody. So that's really important. You've got to make things straightforward for people so they can figure it out on them on their own. And then you don't need as many people internally um, to, 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 you know, sell a customer to help a customer and that sort of thing. Yeah. When we actually started um, Salesforce uh, six years ago, very much following that philosophy. Uh, the very first thing we did was uh, reading your book, getting real. Oh, cool. That's an old uh, one. Yeah, First one, it, yeah, it was actually really a nice read for me. I, I had done business school in the past, like like uh, six years before that. And it went straight into uh, everything I learned at business school, where would basically our entrepreneurship project would be writing a business plan for a few months. And then that was it. We wouldn't actually do anything else. And you were just advocating to go out there and test things. Uh, and I know that a lot of the founders I also had on the on the podcast uh, tell me similar stories of how they read Getting Real or Rework. How do you sort of uh, reflect on the, the impact you've made there um, with these books and, and on the industry? Well, it's humbling to hear the people read our stuff and find it useful um, because, you know, what we've always tried to do is just to, to share and teach as much as we possibly can. There's, we don't feel like there's anything that's worth keeping so tight to your chest that it's so proprietary that you can't share it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we always want to be an alternative to, again, what we talked about earlier in this call, the VC model, the raise a bunch of money model, the make things complicated model, the hire a bunch of people model, the grow really fast model. And so we want to put alternative materials out there and, and help. And, um, and, you know, we do think it's, like I said, or like, I don't, I'm not out to tell people exactly what they should be doing, but we do believe this is a really great way to run a business. And if you just pay attention to uh, mainstream tech press and um, business press, like all you're going to hear about is companies raising a bunch of money, getting really big, selling for big multiples. And like, 
you don't even have an alternative to that. So um, I'm glad people are picking up these books and reading this stuff. And, and uh, the thing that's, I think, really important about our books is that we don't, they're not prescriptive, typically. Mm-hmm. They're, they're stories about what we've done. Here's what we have done. What you may do is maybe part of what we do, or it may do 10% of what we do, or you may do 0% or you might do 90. You should do what works for you, but here's what's worked for us. And here's why this has worked for us and why we believe in in these things. So I like to give people ideas and suggestions and share experiences, not like here's the 14 things you should be doing and to be successful. (laughs) Like that just doesn't, there's no such thing as that. Um, So I think that's why our books resonate with people is that we're not, we're not telling you what to do. We're sharing what we've done and giving you some, some ways to think about things a little bit differently. So you can expand your own mind and think about things differently um, and become a thinker as well. So I'm glad we've had an impact. Um, I, I, you know, we continue to try and share, but we, we don't, we don't do it um, to, to, um, we don't do it to, 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 try to create carbon copy companies. Like we don't, we don't, we're not, we don't want to see more base camps. I don't mean base camp. Like we want to see more people starting businesses where they're in control of their businesses. We don't want to see more businesses that are run just like ours. That's, that's not, that's like not the important part. I want to see people thinking for themselves. I want to see people challenging what they hear out there. I want to see people running sustainable businesses that are profitable, that they can stay in business for a long time and do things their own way on their own time. That's what's interesting to us. And that's why we share the ideas that we, that we put together. Yeah. Yeah, Reflecting all that, I actually also thought about um, how this is sort of uh, what content marketing should be about in a way, Uh, because a lot of content marketing out there is like you said, it's just like a, here are six things you should do or something. Um, While, like involving people in the, the product or the company you're building, building up a tribe, getting the story, helping other people to, to do good for the world. That's, that's sort of proper content marketing, I would say, because it, it doesn't know only um, help other people. It also sort of pulls other companies into your story, your beliefs, your philosophy at Basecamp, uh, which, which I, I, I do think must have had a great impact on your growth. Yeah, I'm, I'm certain that it, it's helped our business considerably, for sure. We don't measure that. Um, mm-hmm. We don't do that for that purpose. Like our latest book is something called Shape Up. So if you go to basecamp.com slash shape up, S-H-A-P-E-U-P. Um, and uh, it's, it's a book, it's a web-based book and a PDF. So it's not a, it's not a hard copy. It's not available in stores. We self-published this one. We just launched it last year. And it's a very detailed account of how we work day to day and, our, and how we work over six weeks. We have these six week cycles that we work. It's our process called shape up. We put it all out there. It's a process we, we essentially invented and um, we could keep it to ourselves, but why? So, you know, it's better that other people hear about it, not just because maybe they should do it, but that there's another way of working. Cause a lot of people use agile methodologies and whatnot and, or scrum and they think that's the only way to work and they're struggling mightily with it, but there's no alternative. So here's our, here's how we do it. We don't do it that way. We do it a different way. Maybe it makes sense to you. Maybe it doesn't, but at least you can understand there's another way of doing things. And we put this book out. It's free. We don't even ask for your email address. Like we're not out to market to you. You know, Mm -hmm. we just want to share. We we wrote this thing here, check it out. And Hey, if that helps you understand who we are and maybe you check out Basecamp because of it, that's a great side effect. 
but really it's about sharing the information and helping teams see that there's another way to do things that we think is a better way. Your mileage may vary, but we think it's a better way. And we've been just hearing from people for years how much they struggle with all the ways that everyone else tells them how to work, yet they mm-hmm. keep working that way because they didn't know there's any other way to do it. And so oftentimes we put material out just to show that there's another way of doing things. And yes, some people latch onto that. They, they support us. They like what we have to say and they check our products out and it leads to sales, I'm sure at some point, but we don't track that or measure that or care. That's not the whole point. That's not why. So yes, in a sense, it's content marketing, but mm-hmm. we don't do any of the things a content marketer would do, which is track these things, know what works, know what doesn't change the headlines to make sure they're more, you know, link baity or SEO friendly. Like we just write and share and whatever happens, happens is kind of how we do it. Yeah. This is sort of um, the same thing, but differently again. I mean, it's like you said earlier, uh, all the things that are in a, in a certain way in the industry, uh, people are doing that way because of growth at all costs while you're yeah. doing it for the sake of uh, helping people which doesn't make it not content marketing, um, but it's from a whole other perspective in a in a in a better way. Or <laughs> I hope a, so. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> hope so. And um, you know, look, there's there's a lot of people out there who who don't like what we have to say and think mm-hmm. that, that we're saying the wrong things and we're hurting people by telling them not to, you know go try to build a billion dollar business and raise money and all these things. And they point to all these examples. And, and like, that's all fair too. It's all fair. Like they've got their perspective. We've got ours. We think ours is, 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 is the right one for us. And we're going to put materials out so you can make your own mind up, but read at least check it out mm-hmm. because who knows you've got to be exposed to new ideas to, to know if, if the one you're following is the right one for you. And, and um, there just aren't a lot of people out there putting out, alternate ideas, um, pushing that's against the, the tide. So that's, if that's, if that's our role and that's our legacy, ultimately, uh, great. And if we can spawn a hundred thousand successful businesses that wouldn't have been successful, would have flamed out because they tried to go too big, but instead like our ideas lead to people who are actually running businesses that they can run for a decade or two. Wonderful. And pay people fairly wonderful and treat people well. Wonderful. That, that'd be an amazing thing to have. And it's similar to, to when we released Rails and open source Rails, or David did, my business partner. Mm-hmm. Like Rails is open source. We don't make any money off Rails. But Rails has led to hundreds of thousands, I don't know, maybe a million careers uh, for programmers. You know, And like, that's wonderful. We're happy that that, we're super happy that that's the case. Like, that's, that's wonderful. It's not that like, it helped us sell this or helped us sell that. It, it, it did or didn't. I don't even know. Certainly, it probably helped our reputation. But like, we don't, tr- again, we don't track these things. We don't do it for those reasons. We do them truly to help and, and put stuff out there in the world that we wish was out there in the world. Um, and there it is. Yeah. Starting to wrap this up slowly. Uh, I usually ask guests what the latest co- good book was that they read and why they chose to read it. But as I know that you don't like, I, you, you like to avoid being influenced too much by other people's thinking, I'm going to ask it slightly <laughs> differently. Okay. Uh, of all the books you've read over the past few years, or maybe longer, uh, which one of those did influence your thinking in a big way? Yeah, in what way? I have a copy of it right here, so let me just grab it. Um, this book, which is only 60, I think it's 60 pages. Hang on. Yeah, about 60 pages long. It's probably been the most 
um, profound thing I've read in a long time. I cannot see it. Uh, it's called The Manual. Mm-hmm. Epictetus, the Stoic philosopher. Um, this is, of course, a translation. And it's like thin. And it's a series of very short essays, just like our books. I mean, or, I mean we're, our books are like this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, one essay per page, basically. Some are like two paragraphs. Some are, some are shorter, a sentence, you know. Some are like actually maybe two pages. Um, and it's, I'm not going to say anything else about it, but I would just say that this book has really helped me change my approach to thinking about a variety of things. It's not a business book. It's more a book about, about life and it's fantastic. So I would yeah. say this book, it's like 10 bucks and you can read it in an hour. And I think it'll be the, one of the most important things you've read in a long time. So please do check this out if you get a chance. Is it uh, better than The Guide to the Good Life by William B. Irvine? Or? I love that book. Um, I would start here because this is a really quick read. Mm-hmm. And then I'd go to The Guide to the Good Life. Yeah. yeah, because that one is much more sort of, it gives you a nice all, like framework, let's say. Well, yes. I'm supposing I didn't read that one yet. Uh, it's probably, it's, it's one, it's only one writer. Uh, so it's yes. not the whole stoic philosophy. Exactly. Going on. Yeah, this is um, more like um, a series of um, thoughts and observations about situations. And a guide to the good life is definitely more of a um, collection of of a bunch of different Stoic philosophers' points of view put into a really beautifully written, digestible book that mm-hmm. helps you sort of understand the philosophy and the background. There's no like background in this. This just like goes right into some ideas. It's anyway. It's wonderful. Um, highly recommend checking this out. It's it's very profound, and and uh, I, I try to read it. Once a month, I'll just go back to it and like, read it because it just, I, I, I slip and I don't live by it sometimes. And I, man, that would have been, I should remember that. And I kind of go back and read it, but check it out. I guess the nice thing about this one is that it's just an hour read. So it's an you hour. can just pick it up, read it again. Boom. Yeah. It's, it's easy and it's clear. It's wonderful. So please do check that out. Yeah. Yeah. I'll put it on my Goodreads list right after this. Cool. Uh, I was wondering, like, have you applied any of the um, um, stoic concepts at Basecamp already, or is that is it purely a life sort of thing? Um, I think we probably, you know, indirectly applied a lot of these things um, primarily around control. You know, being 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 clear about what's in your control and what's out of your control, um, especially when it comes to um, how people feel about things mm-hmm. and recognizing that, like you know, I can be frustrated by something at work, but that's really just my reaction to the thing. The thing itself is, it, it's my reaction that that's kind of the more meaningful side of it or like the more destructive side or the more helpful side, whatever it is. So really paying attention to like, why am I reacting this way? And I'm in control of that, but I'm not in control of the thing. The thing is going to happen. The thing is the thing. Um, and really kind of keeping, keeping like, when we have debates, like heavy, hard hitting debates about certain things, just like, staying a little bit more grounded in those conversations um, has really been, been something I think that's, that's, that's been quite helpful. Um, and also, you know, I think just um, understanding the downsides, like really thinking about things in terms of bets, which is not really necessarily a stoic thing, but negative visualization is like, what's the worst that could happen? 
Like, kind mm-hmm. of, like in any city, like what's the worst? So we've been building this new product for a couple of years now. Like what's the worst that can happen? The worst that can happen is it doesn't work. It doesn't, mm-hmm. I mean, it works, but like it doesn't take yeah. off, you know, it doesn't do what we maybe hoped it would do and mm-hmm. we'll be okay. Like we'll just go back to focusing on Basecamp. Basecamp's a wonderful business. We'll be all right. Like it won't be this existential threat. It won't, we won't be horribly depressed. It's just like, it might not pan out. It's totally possible that it might not pan out. And this new feature working on for Basecamp may not pan out. It might be six weeks worth of work that doesn't really go anywhere. That's okay. It's okay. Like we always try to manage our downside risk by imagining what the downside would be and coming to terms with that. And if we can't come to terms with the downside on something, we typically don't do it. We also try not just to put ourselves at risk. We'll take a risk, but we don't want to put our business at risk. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's little pieces of that built in, in into into how we think that come from that philosophy, but also come from other philosophies as well. But I think really negative visualization has been another big thing. David and I, we David and I have often talked about this. We've been in business for 20 years. We'd like to be in business for another 20. What if we go out of business in five? What if someone just destroys us or some terrible thing happens or there's a data breach, whatever, right? Like mm-hmm. and we go out of business after being in business for 25 years or going out of business next year. Like let's say that happened for some reason. Like that would be really unfortunate, but we also had a 21 or 25 year run. That's not so bad. That's yeah. an amazing thing to have had to have been in business for 20, 21, 23, 25 years. That's not bad. Um, again, like everyone at base camp would be able to get a new jobs somewhere else. It would be terrible for a moment, but they'd be able to get new jobs. We'd help them to get new jobs. David and I are, are have done well for ourselves. Everything will be fine. Um, and that's not the case in all moments and all, but, but we have think, thought about that in terms of business. Like, Hey, we've got a business, like not a bad run. That's okay. Everything dies at some point. Every business ends at some point. Like those kind of realizations I think are really healthy versus feeling like you have to hold on to this for dear life forever. And the amount of stress that that creates, I think is very unhealthy. So anyway, um, it also helps us like decide just to go for it. Like, Hey, if this, if we have got this crazy, like this, Hey thing, this new email thing, it's pretty ambitious to build a new email service, like to take on mm-hmm. Gmail, let's say, or Outlook, like, we're a small company trying to take on Gmail and Outlook. That's kind of nuts, but like we're going for it because why not? Like, why not go for it? Um, and if it doesn't work out, that's okay. Cause we have something else too. It just helps us give us some of that grounding and say like, let's just have some fun with this and take some chances. As long as we understand what the downside would be. Cool. Last question. Yeah. Uh, if you would take one thing and the, the one thing questions are hard, of course, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if you sure. would take one thing from the last 20 years, and you would take it to the next 20 years, like as advice to yourself, what would you take? Um, probably um, getting really good at saying no to things that take time. Yeah, that take your time and, and don't leave you feeling like it was worth it. I think... Mm-hmm. Um, especially early on in your, in your career, people tend to just say yes to everything, like every networking opportunity, yes. Every deal, yes. And every sale, yes. And every customer, yes. And I understand that those feelings and those pressures and those, the feeling like you, you don't want to miss this. But you can then look back in five or 10 years and go, I'm really unhappy doing all the stuff that I've been doing, but I did it because that's what I, I had to say yes to it. Now I'm I don't have any time to myself. My calendar is full in the next three months. I have no flexibility and no options, optionality, and I'm just stuck. And I, I've met a lot of entrepreneurs who've done that. They've like, 
textbook have done well for themselves, but they're mm-hmm. really miserable because they're running a business that they don't really like to run in a way they don't like to run it, but they they have no choice anymore because that's just what they've gotten used to doing. And the thing is that um, you form habits whether you like them or not. And so if you just say yes to things and, 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 and do a bunch of stuff you don't want to do and, and make excuses for the things you're doing at work, um, you're just going to form that habit and do more and more more of those things. So I think the thing I would probably focus on early is trying to focus on on setting up really good habits around my time and attention and getting better and better at making sure I really want to do something before I do it because that way I'll get better and better at that moving forward versus getting better and better at doing things you don't want to do and then looking back and go, oh, I'm just in a crappy spot. I don't like to even go to work anymore. Um, so. Yeah. I think we've been pretty good at that, but I would love to have gotten better at that earlier. I think that's something I think that's really important. And then the other thing is, is um, grow slowly and in control because you can very quickly lose control of your business um, by getting out ahead of yourself and, and putting yourself behind the eight ball and finding yourself in a hole that you have to constantly be digging out of every day. And then you finally dig out of it and another one's right next to you and you have to jump into that one and mm-hmm. you can really make things hard on yourself very quickly. So um, I think just figuring out ways to make things easy on yourself and not feel like that's being lazy or something like you do want to make things easy on yourself. Um, and not every problem requires the most elaborate solution. There's a lot of very simple solutions to a lot of problems and kind of finding those things. I think that would, I would hope to continue to do that over the next 20 years. Cool. Yeah. Thank you, Jason. All Again right. For... This is fun. Thank you. Yeah. Nice to have you on. Yeah. Take care. That's it for this episode of Founder Coffee. We hope you liked it. Let the world know if you did. Thanks for listening, guys.